so let's pray. <laughs> Father, we do thank you that what just the choir sang is true. We've got your son Jesus as our Savior. What more could we ask for? We are marveled. We marvel at your grace. We marvel at your mercy in our lives and how you have showered your blessings on us. Lord, thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for Community Bible Fellowship and the people that you've brought to uh, join forces in reaching this community for Christ. Lord, continue to go before us and bless us. Guide us now as we go to the text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you have just joined us, we are walking through, or have been walking through this epistle, this letter that's nestled in the latter part of the New Testament. So 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to begin at verse 1. And as you turn there, uh, some of you know the story, a Christian chaplain, a physical educator by the name of James Naismith was struggling with a rowdy group of kids that were confined to indoor games. It was that harsh New England winter. To make matters worse, the head of the athletic department told Naismith, you have 14 days to get that group into control. <laughs> he said, I, I, I don't want any distractions. We need a, a place where they're, they're not hurting themselves. They have an opportunity to all get involved. And in particular, I want those track athletes kept in shape. So in 1891, basketball was created. It helps to know the background, doesn't it? Because you're going, ah, that's one of the reasons why that sport is played in the wintertime. Now, we could debate the roughness. Maybe that's changed, but I don't know. But understanding the background is also important when it comes to literature. As we've seen time and time again, there's little snippets of Peter, the apostle, peppered through this letter. And it's all the more seen in the summary section here in 5, 1 through 11. You're going to see Peter all over, the, all over this text. And that's vital. I think it's extremely important. It's a bit of a hodgepodge, these few uh, uh, verses, because he's trying to wrap up the letter. He's summarizing what's been spelled out. And he's going to start with elders, and then he's going to deal with the entire congregation. And notice how he begins. So, now in the original language, it's very important because that term draws us to what has already been stated. What has already been stated? Go back to chapter 4, verse 17. It says, for it is time for judgment to begin, starting with the house of God. So he says, we need to examine ourselves. And so in light of that, then Peter gives this declaration here at the end of the epistle. Peter will identify three things about himself to this congregation. Remember, these are believers that are suffering for their faith. We looked at that last week being ridiculed, that are scattered throughout what is modern uh, Turkey today. And he says, first of all, I am, notice what he says, your fellow elder. That is the only time that phrase occurs in the entire New Testament. And I, I find that shocking because in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says, I am an apostle. I mean, this is the grand poopah. This was the spokesman for the, the disciples I, oh, thank you very much. Uh, speaking of Grand Poopas, uh, Nate in charge of tech, right? 
uh, he just wanted a cameo appearance. Uh, and so you, you, you have the man who led the disciples. This is the guy who was the spokesperson for them. He was there in special events such as the transfiguration. He gave the first sermon in the early church. He was the first to be in prison for his faith. I mean, you go through all these first. And, and yet he says, I am your fellow elder. It speaks of great humility. Peter's saying, I'm one of you. And when we look at this grand scheme of things with judgment, I'm right in there with you as your fellow elder. He doesn't stop there. He then says, and a witness of Christ's suffering. (laughs) I find this rather ironic. Because if I was Peter, I probably wouldn't highlight that I was a witness to the sufferings because immediately we go, oh yeah, you're the louse. You're the one who denied Christ three times. You're the one who fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think Peter's highlighting this. He goes, yeah, I'm one of you. I had the privilege of being there and I've blown it. But I'm one of you. I'm a fellow elder. I'm a witness to Christ's suffering. And by the way, the the term for witness here is also the term we use for martyr. I I, I saw all of that firsthand. He doesn't stop there. And as one who shares in the glory, notice this, not what has been revealed, because some scholars try to take this to the Mount of Transfiguration. And yes, that was Christ in all his glory. But he says, the glory that will be revealed, which is vital. Peter's not only an elder who blew it. He did repent and has been restored. And as one of the congregation, he joins in, in sharing in Christ's glory that awaits. I think he's looking to the future. It's what we've seen in chapter 1, verse 7, 11, chapter 4. We saw it uh, as we looked at that, this, this future glory that waits. And so as Peter starts out and giving these final words, he says, I, I, I'm one of you. And in this, don't let me... Don't let me Uh, downplay the grace that's been extended to me and also to all of you because we get to participate in this glory that is to come. So then he will start and he will preach to the choir. (laughs) He's going to preach to the elders. And I know some of you are saying, well, that's fine. I think you got, what, seven elders at this church. I can just tune you out for a few minutes. But really, the principles here to the elders fall, I would argue, to any leader in the church. And for those of us that are not in leadership, I think it's a standard we must hold our leaders to. So as we as a congregation look to, I mean, our elders aren't appointed for life. So then when we vote in elders or we vote in uh, another, uh, another pastor on the staff, these are the qualifications we need to be looking for. Do they match up to these? If not, run like the wind. Vote no, right? And so what are those things that, that Peter, as a fellow elder, is saying needs to appear. Notice what he says. And it's interesting. He's going to give us three, do, don't do this, but do this. And so the first of these is give a shepherd's care to the flock among you, exercising oversight, not, here it is, merely as duty, but willingly under God's direction. Give a shepherd's care. How many times did Christ talk about himself the thing of John's gospel John I am the the good shepherd Peter's recalling those he remembers but oh 
he especially has to remember John 21. You remember the scene. I would argue it's the most formidable moment in Peter's ministry. Peter blew it big time. And what does Jesus do? He restores him. In that scene, he says, Simon, Peter, do you love me more than these? And I don't think he's talking about the disciples. Never are we comparing our love to others. He's talking about the fish that are there. You've you gone back. I called you to be a fisher of men, not of fish. Do you love me more than this? And, and what does Peter say? Well, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then what does Jesus say? Feed my lambs shepherd the flock <laughs> those words have to be just binging around in his head <laughs> they're constantly there haunting him and as he talks to these fellow elders here in first peter he says give a shepherd's care it's not just feeding them sustaining them it's it's protecting them it's 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 giving them the word knowing the sheep personally their needs, their, their characteristics. I've never raised sheep, but years ago when I was in high school, we raised French lop. At one point, we had a hundred of these little bunnies. It was crazy. But from bonnet to butterscotch, I knew their names. And I had a responsibility as the owner of the French lops to make sure they were fed, they were cared for. When it was hot, they had plenty of water and even freeze two-liter bottles so they could lean against them. It, it, it was expected. And this analogy, which God used in the Old Testament, Jesus uses of himself, and now it's given to the church leaders, you are to be shepherds. He's not asking for absentee lords over the flock. He's asking for shepherds to care for the flock. Now, there are three very significant implications here. Don't miss these in the text, starting in verse 2. First is, the church leader needs to recognize whose flock is it. Notice what it says. Give a shepherd's care to who? God's flock. This isn't my church. This isn't our church. This is the Lord's church. And it's one of the dangers, in fact, early on when our elders started launching this ministry, I can still remember we walked through a whole section of text and, and talked about our role in this. And it was a reminder to all of us, we hold this ministry very loosely. And the danger of any new ministry is you have someone who says, well, I started this program, this is mine. No, it's not yours. The Lord does not need us. <laughs> The Lord is gracious to use us. And that leads us to the second point here. The church leader knows that his care are by God's grace. There's a responsibility, but it, it's far more than that. It, it's a great privilege. I had a, an elder or an old boss, he'd often say, anybody can be replaced. I don't think that was a compliment, but anyway, he would say it. Uh, I thought, yeah, you can be too, right? The idea is, the Lord does not need us. And to those who are in leadership, whatever role that might be, it is simply by God's grace that you're there. But there's a comfort in this, isn't there? The third implication from the text is that God gives us the provisions. If he has given this ministry to Joe or to Sally, you fill in the blank, God's gonna give the provisions that are needed in order to fulfill that role. And so he says to the elders, serve caringly 
And then notice what he says in the latter part of verse 2. But he says, not for shameful profit, but eagerly. And there's the second aspect, to serve eagerly. The term expresses extreme uh, enthusiasm. It's great zeal. This is what you want to do. In other words, the church leader serves not because he has to, but because he wants to. I remember meeting with pre-seminary students, these guys going into ministry, and you would meet and say, well, what, how do you feel that God's called you into this ministry? And they would share, et cetera. And one of the questions I would often raise to them, can you see yourself doing anything else besides the pastorate? If they could say yes, then the next line is, then don't go into the pastorate. Because this is what God has called. I think of, of Romans 1, where Paul says, I was eager, I am so eager, he says, to proclaim the gospel. And Peter says, those of you who are serving need to do it with eager hearts. After all, it's God's grace that he worked in your life to call you to his own, that he should give you and trust you with a ministry. And so he says, that needs to be done with not shameful profit. The term there is greed. And yes, we can talk about money, and there's nothing wrong with paying employees and, and paying people in ministry, but the, the word here is shamefully. It, 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 it's, it's all about money. And, and, or you could also argue not just money, but personal gain of any sort. Can you imagine if you opened up an ice cream shop and you were paying your workers $20 an hour, these teens? That's pretty good money. Uh, I don't know, maybe today it should be $40 an hour. But you're paying them uh, and charging $300 for an ice cream scoop. But you're paying them, it's wonderful, things are going great. And you got this employee and you know it's free ice cream, all you can eat, and the $20 an hour. And you find out this employee is taking money out of the cash register. You probably wouldn't be too happy. <laughs> but think about being in the Lord's work, whether that's as a lay person in leadership or uh, if you're on staff. The Lord has entrusted us to a task and to take it wrongfully, well, being fired would be the least of your concerns, or it should be, <laughs> because it comes onto the hills of be on guard because God, God is going to judge his household first, the text found in chapter 4. So he says, serve caringly, serve eagerly, and then notice what he says in this next verse. And do not lord it over those entrusted to you, but be examples. The lord it over them uh, refers to someone who's domineering, exercising complete control. I knew a pastor used to tell the deacons exactly where they would sit. <laughs> the church doesn't need a dictator, nor does it need a benevolent dictator. A good shepherd must lead, not drive. You know, I, as I was reading this, I kept thinking of what Christ told those disciples. Remember they had that little scuttlebutt about who was going to be the greatest. And in Luke 22, Jesus takes out a bit of a paddle and he has a dialogue with his disciples. Peter's standing there. Peter heard all this. It says in Luke 22, a dispute arose among them, that is the disciples, as to which one of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the one who serves. 
For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It was loud and clear. It's one of those oops moments as a disciple. Once again, you put your foot in your mouth. And, and what Peter is saying is, elders, you're not called to be celebrities. You're called to be caregivers. We don't need super saints. We need servants. We, need, we don't need overlords. We need overseers. Hmm. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary, he writes, we lead by serving and we serve by, watch this, suffering. This is the way Jesus did it and this is the only way that truly glorifies him. Let me say that again, quoting Wiersbe, we lead by serving and we serve by suffering. And so Peter is writing to a group of believers who are suffering. They're scattered. He said earlier they are exiled. He says to the leaders who are undoubtedly targets, he says, you need to be serving with great care. You need to do it eagerly and you need to serve humbly. And the last part found in verse four is you need to serve expectantly. He says, then when the chief shepherd, don't you love that? It was the good shepherd who died for the sheep in John 10. It was the great shepherd who lives for the sheep in Hebrews 13. And here it's the chief shepherd who will come for his sheep. The chief shepherd is a term that has been found in ancient writings. Uh, there's a mummy from right before the first century that had uh, this corpse, this person buried here, was a chief shepherd. Uh, this is the, the master cook, the master shepherd, one who oversees. And he says, the chief shepherd, Peter writes, when he appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. The crown, the term here is used for athletic events. And that crown faded because it was made of flowers or leaves. They would wither away. I'm sure mama still kept it on the mantelpiece. But it faded. Not this one. In fact, the construction in the Greek is so clear. It is a crown that consists of heavenly glory. It, it, Jesus' own suffering, and after he suffered, he was crowned with glory and honor. And what is he saying to the elders? Peter's echoing here that he will reward his faithful under shepherds in having him join them, or having them join him in this unfading glory. A servant of the Lord is seeking to hear well done and receiving the unfading crown of glory. And what a joy it will be, right, elders, when we get to stand, kneel at Jesus' fall, fall at Jesus' feet and take off that crown and place it at his feet because this is all about him. And acknowledge that all we did was because of his grace, his power, and it's for his glory. Now, keep in mind, for those of us who are not elders, there is glory that awaits all believers because in chapter 3, which we looked at a long time ago, 3.9, it says, you will inherit a blessing if you are faithful, the glory that waits. And so our ministry is not about seeking an empire, the applause of men, or a prominent international fame. If it is, we're in serious trouble. I remember several years ago taking a group, we were in Geneva, Switzerland, and I was looking for John Calvin's house. And 
the, uh, we asked a couple people, I, I, the guide wasn't quite sure, and he asked a couple people, and they looked at this blank stare. These are people that were born and raised in Geneva. They had no idea who John Calvin was. And I thought, you know, that's exactly how John Calvin would probably want it. Because it wasn't about him. Sola Deo Gloria. It was for God's glory. That is what we are here for. Notice what is not in the list that Peter just gave in, in these few verses. Not that it, it, he doesn't say a church has to grow by 25% within five years. The sermon must be 30 minutes long. Or the pastor must publish five books in 10 years. None, none of that is there. What is there is character. Character is valued over performance. And that's why Calvin in his commentary of 1 Peter said there are three dangers for leaders. That is sloth, <laughs> laziness. Let me go on there. Desire for gain and lust for power. If you see one of these traits in your leaders here at the church, then pull out a bat and take out the kneecap. Warn us first, but seriously, hold us accountable. That means you are praying for your leaders. You're encouraging your leaders. And together, we are seeking to glorify him. Well, you say, what picture do you have of this in scripture of a great leader? And I think a beautiful scene is found in Acts chapter 20. In fact, one of my favorite scenes in all of the New Testament. If you remember, Paul is headed towards Jerusalem, knowing full well it is not a good day. And the elders from Ephesus have met Paul at Miletus. They have this discussion. And what does Paul say to them? Listen very carefully in light of what Peter just stated. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking to the elders. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the... And it's the same term used in First Peter. Flock. English translations often translate it church. But it's the flock of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands, I mean, think about it. His hands are stained with the dye of working with leather, which was forbidden for a rabbi. So look at my hands. It shows the manual labor that I did. Why? For you to remember the words of Christ that said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Wow. And so, elders, take Acts 20. Put it on your mirror this week. For those of you who are not elders, put it on your mirror as well. <laughs> and pray through your elders. That, Lord, protect them. Guide them. We need that. We've, God has been gracious to us as a body of believers. We have grown very quickly. We're building a, a church. That's God. And we don't want to get in the way do we? Well, he's not done. He's talked to the elders, and now Peter's saying, oh, lest you all think you're off the hook, now let me talk to you. So he gets to verse 5, and he says, the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. 
Now, I need to be careful here because the age in the first century was very revered. This is not saying that all elders have to be over the age of 60 or, um, because, or that all elderly are spiritually mature. He's not saying any of that. It's really speaking of seniority. And the call, by the way, as you see in the, in the latter part of verse 5, it says, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility. So I would argue there's submission for all of the body of believers we are in this together. And if, if you question that, just go back to what Peter said to the elders. I'm one of you. We're in this together. Remember, it's on the heels of what was said in chapter 4. We as a household of God need to make sure we're pure. And so he says, we need to walk in unity. That's the first here. Submitting to one another, especially those whom God has placed over you. Secondly, we see it's to walk in humility. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. I love that term, clothe. It's the same thing seen in John 13. Do you remember in John 13 in the upper room? What does Jesus do? He clothes, he girds himself with a towel. He bends down and he washes the feet of the disciples. <laughs> Even Peter was having a holy hissy over that one. I mean, here he is. His master taking a towel, performing a task that was reserved for servants. And, and by the way, in a Jewish culture, that was even beneath a Jewish servant. You want to talk about humility. And, 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 and so when he says, gird yourself, clothe yourself with this humility, I can't help but think, ah, Peter's reflecting back to the upper room. What Christ did, we need to do. That's our chief shepherd. He's modeled it for us. And he says, towards another, one another, because God, and he quotes from Proverbs, opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He says three things about humility here. First, humility recognizes the sovereignty of God and indicates a willingness to submit. There's an act of faith. I'm willing to do this. But also notice that humility leads to exaltation. Because he says in verse 6, God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourselves under his mighty arm. Due time, that phrase is clear. It's used time and time again to refer to the end. God will glorify you when he appears, verse 4, or later as we're going to see. And third point with humility, it's accomplished by all things by trusting God. Notice what he says. This, this is fascinating. He says, exalt your in due time if you humble yourselves under his mighty hand. How? Here's the, the, the by means of, the, the participle of means, verse 7, by casting all your cares on him. It's a permissive passive. In other words, Lord, I, I would love to worry about these things, but no, I'm going to trust you in this. Oh, wow. That's humility. Because arrogance says, no, I got this, Lord, thank you. I, I, you might need my help. <laughs> Whatever the case may be. And notice, it's not just the biggie worries that we hand over. What's the text say? All of our concerns and cares. Now let's go back to Peter. Peter, can the chief shepherd be trusted? Concern for illness and its effect on his mother-in-law? Jesus intervened. Concern related to finances, his fishing business, paying taxes, the Lord provided. Concern for life, I mean, he was 
going down in the water. What did Jesus do? He rescued him. Concern related to confusion and failure to understand, Jesus gave wisdom and insight. Concern for weakness and inability to face hardship, the Lord strengthened. Concern for anger and crossing the line, the Lord brought healing. Concern for not being forgiven, self-disdain and loneliness, the Lord restored. Concern of persecution and imprisonment, the Lord delivered. The chief shepherd who intervened, provided, gave insight, strengthened, healed, restored, delivered Peter is the same shepherd who watches over us. And we have the privilege of casting our cares at his feet. <laughs> and Peter says to a group of believers who are suffering and their world is spiraling out of control politically and otherwise, and you're going, oh, Peter says, no, 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 just cast your cares at him. He's already reminded them of this, but he comes back to this because it's so important in closing out the letter that they be united, that they walk in humility. And notice he also talks about walking in awareness. Now we've looked at this text before a couple years ago, so I'm not gonna go down some of the paths that we looked at, but it's important to, to highlight it again. He says in verse eight, be sober and alert. Why? Your enemy is a roaring lion. That is Satan. You gotta know your enemy. A couple months ago, Josiah, my son, was helping me. We were doing a lamp, and he plugged it in, and he gave a nice yelp. Uh, he got zapped <laughs> big time. And I thought, oh, I didn't do my job to, to talk about electricity and uh, how we have to be careful and the implications, right? And, and Peter, unfortunately, missed that cue back at the Garden of Gethsemane. He fell asleep, not once. Not twice. And what did Jesus say? Careful because Satan is going to sift you. But now, Peter understands. And Peter says, oh, you got to be on guard. You've got to watch. And he calls to resist. Well, how do you resist the devil? Let me give you a few pointers. Pray. Know the word of God. Praise. That is worship. Listen to one of the choir numbers, right? Help your fellow believer. Renew your holiness. In short, it's putting on the whole armor of God. That's how you resist the devil. And in this being alert, also we see Peter says, listen, you're not alone in this. And you may think you are his recipients of the letter, but he says, no, verse nine, you need to know, brothers and sisters, throughout the world, don't you love this? We're not alone in this. They're enduring the same kinds of suffering. We have the privilege, Peter's already said, in joining in the sufferings of Christ. We looked at that last week. And the church globally is doing that. And so he says, you need to be unified. You need to walk in humility. You need to be aware. And finally, he says, but walk in confidence. It's interesting, typical of Peter's writings he utilizes a particular conjunction here in verse 10 that creates a contrast. He said, yeah, there are the church is suffering, you're joining in them, but he says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. <laughs> the word for restore is used of mending nets. Our 
fisherman, Peter, knows full well what it means to mend nets. In fact, two of his yahoos, James and John, were called while they were mending nets. Uh, he was trying to fish, but nonetheless, he understands full well that this is what the Lord is to be doing, will do. The four verbs there, restore, confirm, strengthen, establish, are so similar that one scholar says we're just splitting hairs to differentiate between the various verbs. They are piled up rhetorically to emphasize that God will strengthen us in every way as we face persecution. Peter knew this. He knew what it was like to be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established This is a guy who denied his savior. And yet, three times, to counteract the three denials, Jesus said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And Peter says, I know what it's like to be restored, but wait till the end. Wait to see what we have. And so, church, whether you're an elder in leadership role or not, we are called to submit, to walk in humility, fulfill the calling that has been set before us, and to hope in the glory that awaits. All of those aspects are found in a very familiar psalm, Psalm 23. You know the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. In fact, let's just read it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me do. Leads me to refreshing water. He restores my strength. He leads me down the right paths for the sake of his reputation. Even when I must walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff reassure me. You prepare a feast before me in plain sight of my enemies. You refresh my head with oil. My cup is completely full. Surely your goodness and faithfulness will pursue me all my days, and I will live in the Lord's house for the rest of my life. Look at this psalm in light of the four aspects that Peter's highlighting going back to our chief shepherd There's a call to submit, O church, and you see it here. He is my shepherd. He leads. This isn't a (laughs) co-leading. We're not having a committee give uh, advice to God. We let him lead. We walk in humility. How do we walk in humility? By casting our cares on him. I fear no danger. Why? Because I've cast my cares on him. I know he's in charge. He is the chief shepherd. He will care. Fulfill our calling, I would argue. It's, it's living my days to glorify him as I in, see the blessings that come. And we talked about that earlier in First Peter. Your goodness and faithfulness will pursue me. And then what's the last aspect that we saw here in chapter five? We look to a glorious hope. I will live in the Lord's house for the rest of my days. Peter knew what awaits. He stood on the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, Second Peter, which we're going to study next in two weeks, we're going to wrap up First Peter next Sunday. But Second Peter, the apostle will appeal to the Mount of Transfiguration to talk about his authority. He knows what glory awaits. And so he says to the church, submit, 
Walk in humility, be faithful to your calling, and hope in the glory that lies ahead. And so your principles there seen in your notes, the work of our good shepherd should strengthen our resolve to live for him. For elders, it's caring, it's acting eagerly and humbly to the congregation and really all of us, it's serving by walking in unity, humility, and great awareness. And second, the promised return of our good shepherd, that's that expectation, that confidence that we have should strengthen our resolve to live for him. For the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Father, what a glorious text. We see grace written all over it in the life of Peter and how events come crashing into this latter part of 1 Peter. But we also see the grace you've extended to us. Lord, what a day it will be when we will be in your presence, our good shepherd. What a day it will be to bask in your presence, to, to be with those who've gone before us. And Lord, it's our desire that in so doing, we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.